Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Hi there, and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira, from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Would you believe that, as a writer, your online platform doesn't have to be a chore or a burden? Through Blog School's online courses, novelist Carrie Claire shares what she's learned from more than 20 years of blogging to help authors take advantage of blogging's elasticity and create individualized platforms that deepen creative connections. Head to myblogschool.ca slash the shit to take our quiz and start dreaming up a blog that fits your life and makes it even richer. That's myblogschool.ca slash the shit. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks segment. Today we've got two awesome authors who are joining us so that we can critique their work. First up is going to be Melissa and after that we have Elizabeth. Melissa, welcome to the show. Hi Bianca, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you. Will you kick us off by reading your query letter? Sure. Dear Bianca, Carly and Cece, 
Not a week goes by that I am not thankful for you and your podcast, which has not only strengthened my craft, but helped me build cherished writing partners. Told in dual timeline, The Molting Seasons of Magnolia, 88,000 words, follows a healthcare executive who was medically gaslit after giving birth, forcing her to confront that the passing of time may not be enough to protect Black girls like her. For viewers of the documentary Aftershock, this literary fiction illuminates the haunting reality of Black womanhood as depicted in The Other Black Girl by Zakiya Delilah Harris, while navigating the weights of cultural expectations like in Liberty by Caitlin Greenidge. In the spring of 2020, Magnolia mourns the birth of her healthy newborn son. She'd imagined earning her PhD at Harvard, being married to a wealthy white MD, and relocating her family to an estate on Boston's North Shore would build her children's immunity to the social inequities tied to Black lives. But when the video of Ahmaud Arbery's murder goes viral, she agonizes that her external achievements might never be enough to guarantee their personal safety. When she develops a postpartum complication, there's still a chance her executive status could free her from the same biases she works to eradicate. But it turns out she may need saving too when her symptoms are dismissed and she is discharged. 13 years earlier, a physician discounted her eating disorder, claiming black girls couldn't have a white girl's disease. The inattention convinced Magnolia that her illness was all in her mind until she required emergency surgery for her survival. Now, she must fight to ensure history doesn't repeat itself. Long-listed for the 2022 Disquiet Prize, this book draws on my own medical gaslighting experiences and ensuing public health career focused on health disparities research and evaluation. When not wordsmithing new realities, I can be found adding vintage charm to my New England home where I live with my husband and five children. Content note, the full manuscript includes depictions of eating disorders and mention of suicide. Wonderful, Melissa. Thank you so much. Okay, so today Carly and Cece are both going to be critiquing each of the query letters. So Cece, why don't we start with you? I want to start by saying that this is really, really, really strong. Just really enjoyed the query letter. I can tell that you put a lot of work into this. It's under 350 words. That's super impressive. I know how hard it is to get something to read this tight and just this efficient. So so thank you so much for that. Okay, so my notes. When I read the comp, The Other Black Girl, I thought to myself, ooh, there's going to be a speculative element just because that part of that book is just so prominent. But then I'm thinking yours might not have that after reading the plot paragraphs. So that's a question I have for you. Is there a speculative element? And if not, Is The Other Black Girl the best comp? I guess that's my question. I do think that the plot paragraph is starting right because the line about her mourning the birth of her healthy newborn son is very provocative. That's typically not how these these lines work. So I really like that. But when we get to the part about the video, I'm wondering if there's any way that we can make it about how the video coincided with something, a plot event in her life, not just interiority. Because I get that, you know, she's already in a place where she's afraid for her children. But the video just does seem to be too removed from her situation. Definitely something that could culminate and, you know, contribute. But I'm thinking that we like, we need a plot point that's more specific to her, unique to her. And then the video can be a totally different thing. You know, like in my mind, I was even thinking it could be something like XYZ happened in her life, whatever that is, something that has happened before. And because she believes in the false comfort of the life she built for herself, typically she reacts in one way. And her husband's used to that. Her kids are used to that. People in school are used to that. 
but because of the video, she reacts in a completely different way. And so that surprise element might tie this more to her story, which is what I think I wanted more than anything. And also there was a line that genuinely confused me. I had to read it twice and I think I get it now, but I'll let you know in case you want to tweak it. It's the line that reads, when she develops a postpartum complication, there's still a chance her executive status could free her from the same biases she works to eradicate. Because I was like, wait, I don't like, I don't get how these two things are, are connected. And I, I extrapolating a little bit, I think I might, but you know, query letter, we're going to be reading them. I don't even know, like 30 at a time. You want to make sure that there are no lines where anyone could misunderstand. So I would also work a little bit on that. And then the final plot paragraph where we go back in time. I don't know. I don't know. I'm super curious to hear Carly's thoughts because part of me goes, okay, I like that there's, I really like it for the book. Like I really like that connection, the callback, the the fact that like history is going to repeat itself if she doesn't stand up for herself this time. But I don't know that it's, that it belongs there. I think the query letter might be stronger without it, or maybe there's a way to bake it in, not as the very last thing. So I like the fact that she has this history, but I don't think that it belongs at the end. Like the history coming at the end, it almost removed a little bit of the impact of the last line of the present day timeline. Curious to hear Carly's thoughts. Thank you, Cece. Yeah, we will now go to Carly. And then after that, Melissa, you'll have an opportunity to reply and ask questions, etc. Okay, so Carly, your take. All right, I'll start with the same line and then I'll kind of jump back to my other notes since we were kind of on that topic. So yes, I highlighted the part that said there's still a chance for executive status. And so I feel like this query is doing an amazing job at introducing us to the themes of race and class, right? Like this is clear in like, you know, the medical gaslighting, right? Like everything here, I get these three themes. And yet I think we're just trying to figure out how all these things connect. Like all these three things are fascinating and you're integrating them in a really interesting way. But we just want to know from a plot point of view, what's happening. So when, so the wording like executive status, I was like, okay, yeah, I don't know. I was just trying to figure out exactly what about it was executive or how we could frame that a little bit more clearly. So yeah. That's my take on that. I agree with CC. Now I just want to come back to the top. So the title, we get the M and the M, right? So we get some alliteration. Molting. This is a tricky word for me because it's kind of unappealing as a word because I think of like snakes shedding its skin or like, you know, butterflies and, you know, caterpillars doing their doing their thing. It's like, I understand in a literary sense, and I don't know, maybe I'm focusing too much on the grossness of the word and less on the like transformational part of the word. So I don't know. I'm not like I'm not head over heels about the word molting personally. Again, we know this is this is very, very personal, of course. And then right after that, so we have follows a healthcare executive who is medically gaslit after giving birth, forcing her to confront that the passing of time may not be enough to protect black girls like her. So I was kind of I want to dig into this like the passing of time bit, because I was confused about whether it meant like specifically like the women's movement hasn't caught up to protecting black women, or you mean like the passing of time in her own life. And I think that's what you're getting at with this 13 years earlier, because it's piecemeal and we don't get the 13 years earlier to the end. It's it's too far away for our minds to kind of connect that first paragraph to the last paragraph. So I think we do need to find a way to bake that in to the body paragraph, the bit about her medical history. I'm also really curious about how you're going to handle the pandemic in this book, because you say in the spring of 2020, right? So I'm like, oh, gosh, like, you don't mention the word COVID at all. You don't mention the word pandemic. And then obviously, like in, in the pages, we can talk about this a bit more. But yeah, so anyway, I was really curious about that. 
one of my favorite lines in the entire query letter is build her children's immunity to the social inequities tied to black lives. Uh, so elegant and gutting and just like such a such an evocative way to kind of pull all these these themes together. So that's what I'm saying. That's like you got all the goods here. Like, this is very interesting. We're tackling awesome awesome heavy content in a story forward way with you know the actual medical gaslighting so yeah i think i think there's all these little things we're just trying to kind of figure out exactly what's going on and because it's a literary pitch we are sometimes going to think like oh you know the flow of language here you know this is beautiful but we just can't have that at the cost of not knowing what's going on and then when we come to this the 13 years earlier bit yeah, is it a backstory situation? Is it a dual POV situation? Is it just like a tale and a story that she like tells somebody else later on? I think we just need a little context for the structure about how we're going to integrate this 13 years earlier. But yeah, no, it's it's a really, really interesting pitch. Thank you, Carly. Okay, Melissa, so now's your time to give us some context and answer some of those questions. Well, thank you both, Cece and Carly. I mean, the just thinking about how other people are reading it is just so valuable. So I want to first off, thank you for providing your feedback. So I don't even remember all the questions, but I'm going to try to address a couple of the ones that at least stood out to me. So the first one was regarding the comp of the other black girl. So I have gone back and forth trying to figure out what comps can best help explain my story. And I used that because in the past timeline, so it's a dual timeline book, and it's told every alternating chapter, um, at least until the last quarter, where in her past timeline, specifically because of her eating disorder, you get a lot of, and it's not necessarily speculative, but you do get a lot of like what is going on with her mind because of her disorder. And so I sort of found that like, if I didn't include something that hinted at that, someone might pick it up and think that they were getting one sort of story and then be like, oh, wait, like we're getting sort of like the voice of her eating disorder in that past timeline. Um, And I didn't really want to throw them off. So I've actually been having a little bit of difficulty trying to figure out like, do I just spell it out somewhere in the query or use a comp to try to highlight that aspect of the novel? So that was one of the first things. And then Regarding executive status, so I mean, I can definitely play around with that. And so, my idea, at least behind using that later on, was where she thinks that, okay, she's going back in and they're not hearing her, but maybe her status at the hospital because she actually returns to the hospital where she works. And so, she's hoping that, like, oh, maybe like my position here at this hospital can help protect me. And so then regarding the passing of time, so it did relate more to within the 13 years between when the first timeline happened and the second timeline. So that's just a little clarification on that. And then I can't remember anything else except for the title. So it's so funny that you had mentioned like the other aspect of molting because my my focus has always been on like, oh, I was like, oh, when she said butterflies, that is where I was going with that, like this transformation. I mean, sort of just seeing how she grows and the things that you find out that she ends up leaving behind as she as she develops more into the person that she's she's supposed to be and even the person removed from what she envisioned as a privileged person as she thought of like a protected person so that's sort of where that molting piece comes from that's what I have Thank you, Melissa. So before we go to the pages, Carly and Cece, do you have suggestions based on on this feedback? I actually have a follow-up question that maybe you can answer really quick. 
What genre do you think this is? So I think it's literary with elements of psychological suspense. I don't really know if that actually is a thing. I don't know. No, okay. Good to know. I think that if there is that imaginative element, it's okay to keep the other black girl. Like now that you're telling me that there's essentially a, an embodiment of her eating disorder as almost like a voice, as a character, then I think it's okay because it's appropriate. I just had assumed there wouldn't be. And I don't think you need that in the query letter necessarily because as an agent, I would just read that and go, oh, I assume there is. And as long as I dove into those pages and I, my assumptions were, were correct, I would be fully satisfied. So it would not be a problem at all. So I think that you're okay with the cops. Just before we go to Carly, a question I have, Melissa. So is the embodiment of the eating disorder, does that sort of speak in vignettes in the first person? Or is that like a POV character? So she's not a POV character. It's Magnolia's attempt to personify her eating disorder. And so it comes as voices that she hears in her head and sometimes also shadows that she sees, but never a full-on POV character. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. Okay, Carly? No, I don't I don't really have anything else to to add. I think I think you're kind of getting at kind of what we have questions about and and then you can kind of make your own decisions based on that feedback, but um molting. Yes, I will plant that seed that maybe we need another M word there. <laughs> Cece? In that case, I'll add I do think the past timeline needs to be fleshed out because you did mention dual timeline. My brain just didn't register. Which is why I was like, I'm not so sure if that backstory belongs there. But now that you're saying we do alternate these chapters, all we have of the past is this person claims black girl's position, can't have a white girl's disease, like obviously horrific, and that she will need emergency surgery because of this negligence, essentially, right? Like it's a lot more than inattention, in my opinion. And that is not sufficiently fleshed out in a way that goes, okay, what about the conflict in the past? If if you have dual timeline. Each timeline needs to have a protagonist, a central conflict, an obstacle, climax, even in literary fiction. Of course, you know, the conflict can be much more interiority based in, in literary fiction. And right now, the past timeline is not as developed as I think it needs to be, just, just to make it even stronger. I think that's important. Wonderful, Cece. Okay, Melissa, will you give our listeners an indication of what's in those opening pages? Sure. So in the opening of these pages, we meet our main character, Magnolia. She's watching an ominous storm from her balcony when she believes she sees a child outside. We quickly learn she's pregnant and hasn't been able to sleep since news of Ahmaud Aubrey's murder. A gust of wind slams the door. She hears the monitor from her daughter's bedroom. She makes her way to their room when she discovers her youngest daughter is missing. It turns out she climbed in her five-year-old sister's bed because of the storm, but she's okay. After watching them sleep, Magnolia moves across the hall into the nursery, where you learn of her fear to deliver a boy before she herself falls asleep. In the morning, we meet her physician husband, Jameson, who's just returned from an overnight shift in the emergency room. His arrival brings relief, but by the look in his face, Magnolia can tell the relief will be short-lived. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay, Carly, let's start off with you. Will you give us your thoughts on that? All right. I really like the first line. I really felt like it gave us a really like multi-sensory experience. It was raindrops drumming against the slate roof. 
intensified into a bullet shower. I just thought it was great. I really liked that. So I, I highlighted, which you'll see my notes later, you know, a number of things where I'm like, this is great. This is good. A couple of sentences where I'm like, you know, with literary fiction, I always feel like, especially with debut literary fiction, sometimes we're exploring our language and we're like trying to feel out what works and kind of come into our own voice. So there's a few things I highlighted where I'm like, mm, we could probably reword that. But I, the first question is around this kind of first apparition. So I'm kind of connecting the dots now that we've talked more about the query letter that at the gate, she says, I believe she saw a shadow of a child skittering camouflage into the night, but she never questions herself about this. It's just like it happens. So I was kind of like, oh, does she know it's an apparition and not a real child? Does she trust herself to know the difference? Like you just kind of like mentioned it and moved on. So I'm like, okay, that was a, that was something that, that came up for me. Overall, you know, my main note was that it is very cinematic but also there's a lot of realism in here which the mix between cinematic and realism always feels like i'm reading a real book which is nice so it does really feel like it is something that i was gonna see the light of day it's it's, it's gonna make it all the way and i think there's so much here that's really ominous where we're building to something obviously when somebody has pregnant in a scene they we know a birth is going to happen right and so we are working to something so with literary fiction pregnancy can be great because it's like it's an actual event that we're working towards while we're working on all of these interior thoughts so so i thought that was that was good i do think that it's a the scene's a little bit long by the time she makes it to the nursery i'm kind of ready to be done with this scene it could just be my taste where i'm like what's next you know i'm like my little i don't know neanderthal brain is like i need something shiny to look at you know and turn the page but yeah i think we kind of could cut it by the time she like gets to the crib and just like just short just even condense that the bit you know when she's actually in the nursery i would potentially cut that bit because i don't think it's adding much but if you want to keep it i would just probably find a way to condense it and then the covid reference which is he leans down and kisses magnolia's forehead she reaches up but stopped short of cupping his cheeks in her hands, searching his face for an answer to the question she'd been too afraid to ask since March. Are you safe? Right. So I'm kind of like, okay, we're talking about the pandemic and his job and his role as an ER doctor. But yeah, I was curious about how much we're going to get into that. I mean, there's no right or wrong answer. It's just a question with a lot of kind of contemporary fiction is how we're going to handle talking about the pandemic. Do we name it? Is it really in the back of her mind? Is it in the forefront of her mind? So those are my notes. Cece, what do you think? I have a lot of thoughts, as usual. <laughs> I want to first echo what Carly said about the she believed she saw the shadow of a child. Like, I highlighted that and I wrote, this sounds freaky. Is the framing, like, as casual, without emotion, intentional? Because there's no emotion attached to it. Like, I see a, a shadow of a child in the middle of, like, like rain. I'm going to be terrified for for myself for the child for everyone i don't even know so again maybe it is intentional if it is keep it as long as pretty soon talking like first chapter we understand a little bit more about it we get another clue so we can start forming the puzzle in our mind that's really important okay so my notes there's a lot of explaining about the children lillian's and rosie's her children there's two or three references to the name of a child and an age and i wouldn't do that i would just use the name even their ages, I think you should bake it in because it is literary fiction. Bake it in in a way that's a little bit more subtle. Anything like, couldn't believe that a three-year-old could do that or that a five-year-old would do this, like things like that. That way it's less explaining to the reader. I, I think it's really important to treat the reader as very intelligent, especially with literary fiction. It is also a matter of taste. So this, this you know, take this with a grain of salt. I'm also not buying the fact that she would look under the bed before looking at the other daughter's bed. Like I shared a room with my sister for many years. So maybe this is my own bias talking, but she would always come to my bed and my mom 
would always check my bed first before going under the bed and, and panicking essentially. So I, I, unless, and that's, you know, where I got thinking about like family dynamics, unless the, the child never does that, never seeks out her sister. And that's a, a source of concern for our protagonist. You know, she wants their, her daughters to stick together, in which case her interiority would, would explain that. And then you could even have that surprise panic becoming almost delight because they're, you know, her daughter is finally seeking out her older sister and she wants that for her. I don't know. So whatever you decide to do with that, I struggled to believe that. So I think, you know, either change that or add interiority that builds and explains without actually explaining why she would look under the bed. I also think I'm wondering if, because I really liked, for example, I kept highlighting a whole bunch of lines that were like so great. Things like, by now she mentally held on to the leaf's power to safeguard the unborn life, still protected in her womb. Like, I'm not going to read the whole thing because we don't have time. And Bianca will start with the helicopter hands. But there were so many things that were so moving. I don't think the mention of the video in such an explicit way is, and I hate using this word, but I'm going to, is leveraging the power of the video as much as it could. I would much rather have that first reference be, but since she saw, not even mentioned video, but since seeing Ahmed's last moments, or, or, or maybe Ahmed's last moments replayed on her mind, or even just a sharp specific about the last moments, you know, his maybe his feet pounding on the on the ground or the voices. I don't know what it could be. Because that would make me go, wait, she saw someone die? Possibly my first question or assumption wouldn't have been that it's a video. And so by the time I do find out, again, I'm putting those pieces of the puzzle together and I'm doing a little bit of the work myself as a reader, which is what I look for. So yeah, I think, you know, I don't know about this note because I th do think it depends on how you're going to be framing it, but I wanted to be kept curious and I really wanted that surprise element just because I've been noticing more and more how if you surprise me in the first pages, typically that's what hooks a reader. So yeah, those are my notes. Thank you, Cece. Okay, Melissa, would you like to perhaps give some context? Maybe you can give us an understanding of what follows because that might help inform the advice Carly and Cece are giving you or if you have any questions. Sure. Well, again, thank you so much. This has given me so much to think about and to clarify because you're such in your head, you know, as, as you're writing this. So a little piece about the COVID reference. So I think I mentioned COVID like explicitly once and it serves as a backdrop. However, it does. One of the questions I think that maybe Carly has raised, you know, in some of the earlier podcasts is like, if we could move the timeline, let's do that. But because of the pandemic, she's not allowed to have her husband in the delivery room with her. And so that is the thread of COVID. But I do try to not like make it very present. So that uh, I hope answers that question of how much we're going to get of it, but not explicitly in that sense. The mention about the shadow, Cece, when you mentioned there was no emotion tied to it, I tried with the mention of her therapist afterward, where, you know, where I say like the voice of her therapist reminding her to get more sleep, to try to be that sort of like, this is actually in her head, like she's not seeing this and she recognizes it, which is why I don't necessarily stay in that moment too long. Cause she, she does realize like, oh, this is, this is just like a fabrication of my mind. And then I agree with you completely about their names and their ages. I actually was looking back at <laughs> what I sent after I sent it, even though I've read it a thousand times. And I was like, oh, this is not working right here. So thank you for, thank you for pointing that out. 
And one of the questions I had was, does the amount of time the main character spend by herself at the beginning work? And I think, Carly, you you like partially answered this where you talked about like areas where I could cut. And so I guess one of my follow-up questions with that is, because in the second timeline, we are going to be getting a lot of what was happening like with her mental state. I don't know if you have any suggestions to like how I can sort of drop that a little better in that first timeline so that it's not a huge shock in the second timeline. I think ultimately, because we're going to spend so much time with her in her own head throughout this book, my answer is always like dialogue, right? Like, is there anybody else she can interact with in a way to kind of communicate? And I think like what I would be thinking in this scene is her husband's at work. And I know a lot of doctors, obviously, like they're so busy, they're not looking at their phone. But like, does she text him? You know what I mean? Even just to like, try to create a sense of communication with him, even if he's not answering her, or maybe he does answer her. Because obviously, it's the middle of the night, and the kids are sleeping. So she can't really talk to them. But yeah, I think she has to, you have to find some ways for her to interact with other people. That's really the only way for her to get out of her interior thoughts. But Cece? I am okay with dialogue, happy with dialogue, as long as there is a power imbalance in that dialogue. I don't think that you should open up with dialogue if it's like a pleasant conversation with someone she likes and she's being totally truthful with and she's assuming the other person is being the same. That would plateau the story. I would look at Writers and Lovers because it's a very interior book and the beginning is exactly what Carly is saying, which is her interacting with someone else. Still get plenty of interiority, but the power imbalance between the neighbor landlord and the protagonist makes the scene work. It makes her, it leverages her interiority. I did not mind the interiority though. I want to be honest about that. My taste does skew more literary normally, and I did not mind it at all. But I do think that if you're going to keep it interior and not add the dialogue, which you should, if you, if you can make work, I would just up the visceral emotion. I love that she's thinking about her therapist. You're right. It is very clear that she's talking herself out of the panic If we're going to have level-headed interiority where she can immediately summon up her therapist and self-soothe, then the interiority is not doing the job of adding that element of psychological suspense you mentioned when we talked about the query letter. Yeah, my, my advice there was to let her react to this thing that she sees, let her have this visceral reaction, and then she starts to talk herself off of that ledge. I think we rationalize so much, but that comes after the feeling and the panic and the kind of horror of something. And then we say to ourselves, it's fine. Everything's fine. So perhaps give us more of the feeling followed by the rationalization. I think that will help. Okay, Melissa, we've unfortunately come to the end of our time here. It was so lovely, so lovely chatting with you. For our listeners, remember that we have a few of these slots available where you're able to come onto the show. So when you do submit, if you say you want to be on the show, we do kind of consider that you might consider not being on the show and we'll still look at your query in an episode where Carly and Cece are without the authors. But definitely do try for it. And Melissa was wonderful, wonderful getting to chat with you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Bianca, Carly and Cece. Right, before we move to Elizabeth, I'm just doing a quick plug for those of you who are out in Ottawa or near to Ottawa. On the 22nd of November, I'm having an event at Perfect Books at 6.30 p.m. in Ottawa. So I would love to meet you. Please come out for that and we will see you there. Alrighty, so Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so, so much for having me. I have taken classes from all three of you and it's just an honor to be here. So thank you. 
We are very honored to have you here. So we are going to kick it off by asking you to read us your query letter. Dear Cece and Carly, Cece, I read that you love dysfunctional families, female relationships, and offending misogynists. And Carly, I saw that you're looking for plus-sized heroines and sweeping LGBTQ plus love stories with unique structures. So I'm submitting my manuscript, Soft Animal, to both of you for consideration. This 85,000-word upmarket novel tells the story of a woman saddled with intergenerational trauma, wrestling with her bisexuality midlife as she wonders where she belongs in a world that feels dichotomous. Soft Animal explores a queer love triangle a la Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney, while fans of Miranda Kelly Heller's The Paper Palace will enjoy an unfolding forbidden love story within a fast-paced dual timeline structure. Corviday Houlihan is an ichthyologist, in parentheses, a scientist who studies fish, haunted by water, an inherited phobia rooted in tragedy. Just like the salmon at her Oregon fishery swim upriver to return home, so does Corviday, back to a main island to help her oldest friend Zoe move out of the summer house they visited since childhood. Only this time, the happily married women share a passionate kiss, unlocking decades of secrets and betrayal. While one timeline explores their complicated past, the other encapsulates the next 24 hours in which Corviday must navigate the arrival of both hers and Zoe's families, the heartbreak of saying goodbye to a formative landmark, the legacies of trauma, and the complexities of desire. She'll have to decide between maintaining a comfortable life with her beloved husband Amos and risking everything for mercurial Zoe, or maybe she'll face her fears and dare to ask for more. This is the delayed coming-of-age story I needed to write after coming out as bi in my mid-30s. I'm an emerging writer with work appearing in Seamwork magazine, and I own a small design studio called Weird Birds. With over 46,000 followers on Instagram, I'm well-versed in tactical marketing and social media skills and have influential connections to draw upon for selling this book, which are redacted for privacy. I live in Denver with my partner, our six-year-old daughter, and a few beloved pets. When I'm not dancing, cooking, or making my own clothes, I'm working on my next book. I'd be thrilled to send you the full manuscript. Thank you for your time and consideration, Elizabeth Endicott. P.S. Content warning. This manuscript contains non-graphic depictions of sexual assault, opioid addiction, and homophobia. While this book is not explicit, it does not shy away from bodies and what they do. Wonderful. Elizabeth, thank you so much. Okay, Carly. You kick us off and let us know what you think of the query letter. All right. So we've been trying to do this thing lately where we say how many words a query letter is. So I just clocked this one out about like 416. So we're, we're over 400 here. So it feels a teensy bit long, but you also have the content warning at the bottom, right? And all that. So yeah, so I think I think we're we're in good shape here. Okay, so first of all, the title, I mean, Soft Animals, like Mary Oliver, such a beautiful line. And obviously, like I as soon as I saw the title, I was like repeated the poem back to myself. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. And I'm like, oh, it's just one of the best lines ever. So I just adore that. I think this midlife kind of second coming of age, you know, bisexuality discovery is so fresh and rich and complex and, and beautiful. And yeah, I, I love the kind of overall hook here. So it was interesting. So I had highlighted the first line in the body paragraph when I was reading it, being like, ah, oh, this feels clunky. And then when you read it aloud, I don't know, it it like come it came alive to me a bit more. I think because her name, like Corvide Houlihan, we have like a dramatic name, and then we get into the like 
I'm not going to pronounce it correctly, but like ethiologist. We have that. And then we have like haunted by water, inherited phobia, rooted in tragedy. It felt very like we're in a Greek tragedy here. So um, that was a very dramatic line. But as you read it, I, was, I liked it better when you read it aloud. So that's that's just my two cents there. And then the next bit, we have this connection. So you're connecting the fish and then you're connecting, you know, the idea that we return home, right? And the salmon, you know, swimming upstream, all of this sort of stuff. So I really like it. I would just cut out the word island. Like, I think we just need to know she's going to Maine. I honestly don't think we need to know she's going in an island. That saves you a word. But, you know, there you go. I also want to know why they're moving out. Because is it sold? You know, what are the, they need money? Like, what are the stakes around having to sell the house? Because it seems like the idea of where they are is such, I mentioned this in my, when I critiqued the pages, but it's such a rich setting. And so the idea that we have to leave this beautiful, rich setting it's a really big deal. And I don't think we're, we're emphasizing enough how big of a deal it is that, that we're leaving this place. So I would just kind of try to address that a little bit. And my next kind of note is really just around what's actually happening. So we have the arrival of the families, heartbreak of saying goodbye, legacies of trauma, complexities of desire. But at no point do you kind of explain what the trauma is. We get the desire. I mean, desire is desire. Desire is wanting. And obviously, it's like the love triangle. But the legacy of trauma, that's the bit where I'm like, do you just feel like you don't want to spill the beans? Like, you know, what is it about this not naming the trauma or the dramatic moment that like changed everything? I'm worried that if we hide that, you're going to lose request opportunities because we just don't know what it is for the sake of holding back. Do you know what I mean? So that's something I would I would be thinking about. And then I kind of just want to know what's what's in the way of our two female characters getting together, because internally, right, it's the whole like, do I really do? Do I actually have all these feelings for my best friend? You know, like all the internal stuff. But externally, we need some roadblocks. Is it actually Amos or is it through the storytelling structure, which I imagine it to be when we go back into the past that's slowing down this like tension building of the romantic tension of the contemporary plot? So I'd like to know a little bit more of like what's physically roadblocking these two kind of coming together. And in just a small note, I saw an editor recently on their wish list have the wording second coming of age. So I have I know you have here delayed coming of age. I just thought, you know, if you're looking for another word, an editor recently used the word second coming of age and I thought that was um kind of a lovely a lovely way of wording it and I thought your content note was great and and all very thoughtful. So very well done. Thank you, Carly. We're going to move across to Cece. Before we do, I was wondering, agents, if it now might become a thing where uh, instead of audiobooks, we have audio queries. Because if you're liking the way the authors are reading their queries, and maybe you can listen to the queries while you're busy walking or exercising. So let's I think make you just a invented thing. a new app, and I think you need to get to marketing that immediately. I know. Let's start the app where the authors are reading their query letters and the agents can, can listen to them while they're on the go. Okay, Cece, what was your take? I really like this query letter. Like it's very, very strong. It would definitely make me scroll down, read your pages with enthusiasm. I will say this though, selfishly, I shouldn't be telling you this, but you're making the story seem more literary than I think it is. You're calling it upmarket. So instead of having the line that starts with, while well, one timeline explores, it finishes with complexities of desire. I would work more on adding external pressures. If it is a market, there's going to be more plot. And there's going to be more, like I said, external pressures. And so we need more of that to make it up market. Or else I'm going to think it's more of a literary story, more of like an interior quiet story that you digest with your eyes because you want to take in those beautiful sentences. And 
I worry that if that's not what it is, you might be not selling yourself short exactly, but selling yourself as something that it's not. Okay, thanks, Cece. All right, Elizabeth, we're now going to you. Comments and questions. Yeah, that's all super helpful. I think I've been struggling a little bit with like how much to reveal because a lot of those like traumas and the things that are holding them back from each other are kind of revealed as like, I don't know, as the story unfolds. So that's something that I've been kind of struggling with, but I will look at it and maybe try to figure out ways to tease it more without spilling all of the beans, I guess. Yeah, just on that, because yeah, Cece, you hate spoilers. So how do you suggest Elizabeth goes about that? I am of the theory that if you have enough plot in your story, enough surprise, whether that's a big twist or just a small reveal, you will be confident sharing the backstory trauma and the reader will still be delighted by your present day chapters. Now, given that this is a dual timeline, it becomes tricky because it's not backstory. It's a story that's happening now. So, I mean, I would just look at books that do, that that have similar setups, I think, and just check out how much they share. I, I think that when in doubt, I would just share more. I, I, it's, you're right. I don't like spoilers, but if I'm still going to be delighted by reveals that are happening in the present day, I'd be fine with the past day spoilers because they would be more set up than than anything else. But it's definitely tricky. And I think it's the number one thing that all writers struggle with their query letter. And the problem is that in order to know how much you can reveal, I need to know the story. But if you reveal too much to me now, I'll be like, no, no, you told me too much. So it's 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 like an impossible situation. I don't believe unless it's a thriller, I don't think you can tell me too much. Because again, we read these queries and then we go off and time passes and then we read the full and there's just so much time passes. So I just would hate for you to lose out on requests just because you're trying to hold back. Can I just ask one more question? Do you think that I should just drop the word ichthyologist and just say like a scientist who studies fish? I just, I don't know, I've wanted to include that word. I feel like a lot of people don't really know what that word means. And so maybe I should just leave it out. I think somehow it, it makes it sound more serious by naming it with its scientific name. And so I think this is this whole, like, it's an upmarket novel, so we're going to balance the literary and the seriousness with the commercial. I would probably just cut the word, especially because I said and it's in that opening body paragraph. I would keep it. I vote keep. Okay, you explain what it is right away with the paragraph so it's easy on the eyes. And also, I like the fact that it's a different profession. One of the things that I look for all the time in queries is like weird, quirky professions. Not that it's actually that weird, but you know what I'm saying? Like it's not typical. And so I would keep it. Since I'm on the fence, let's side with Cece. Great. I was going to say because otherwise it's clear as mud. Okay. Elizabeth, what was in those opening pages? Yeah, so our main character, Corviday, who goes by Corey, is on an island off the coast of Maine with her childhood bestie, Zoe, and some other friends who we don't meet yet as they're already in bed. It's late at night after one last celebration before they pack up the house tomorrow as it's been sold. So it's just the two of them in the kitchen chatting before bed, but even their simple conversation is a little loaded. Zoe heads to bed, and Corey finds a Polaroid picture of the two of them when they had just graduated high school a picture of the day when everything changed between them. Corey heads to her room, but notices Zoe is still lingering in the landing of the stairs, watching her. Corey ducks into her room, where most of the furniture is packed up, so Corey tries to get comfortable on an air mattress, but feels unsettled. 
Corey's husband Amos calls, revealing their strong bond and that he and their daughter will be arriving to help with the move tomorrow. They talk over each other as they say goodbye, and we see more uneasiness from Corey before she heads to the kitchen to retrieve a forgotten water bottle. She fills up the water bottle and suddenly senses Zoe, who emerges from the dark hallway and cuts across the kitchen to kiss Corey. And that's it. Wonderful, Elizabeth. Thank you. Okay, Cece, let's start with you. So on a micro level, you have the mention of our history on the second page, right? That comes after the mention of unspoken past in the first page. My opinion, keep only the first. By the time you've mentioned it twice with this level of vagueness, I'm aggravated. And I'm thinking to myself, you're trying to manipulate me. I I know you actually are and you're supposed to be, but I can't see it. So the first, great. Second one, cut. We saw it already. It's one page in between one and the other. Just don't do it. Or if you want to keep it, specify it, you know, specify something, a clue, preferably a clue with misdirection, but yeah, so one or the other. When her husband says make good choices, she rationalizes as maybe he can read her mind. I don't like that. Too convenient. I need her to have a specific theory. She can be wrong. Being wrong is fine as long as there's an intelligent reason for her to be wrong. But I need her to have a specific theory as to why he would say that. Because clearly they get along really well. In your summary, you even said revealing their strong bond. So that's the micro stuff. Macro stuff. You're either going to love this or you're going to think I'm out to lunch. Have you ever read All Adults Here by Emma Straub? Okay, you're saying no with your head. I'm going to ruin the first chapter for you and for all our listeners. It's just the first chapter. The story starts with protagonist Astrid saying that a person that she's known, acquaintance, okay, for like over 40 years, this is a very cute little old lady in, in, in her late 60s, early 70s, I don't remember. Barbara, this other person, dies. She's known Barbara for many, many years, many decades, has never liked Barbara. This is already surprising to the reader because we usually don't have an immediate death, followed by, I don't like this person at all. Again, our protagonist goes to the salon. She has a standing appointment there. I think it's every week. And she's talking about Barbara's death and how it really changed her with the hairdresser, right? Who's also her friend. That's all we know. By the end of the chapter, the surprise element that happens to the reader, that that is delivered to the reader, is that the hairdresser says, well, you know, if, if this death shook you up so much, we have no time to waste. Takes her by the hand and they go to the back room where they make love. And so... You are getting this, you're subverting the reader's expectations by taking this, you know, late 60s, cute little lady. I think of my mom when I think of a lady, a lady in her late 60s, you know, like just being very traditional, small town, has grandchildren. And then the surprise happens. What you're doing is you're telling us that it's going to happen. And then it happens. And to me, I like that the release happens. Don't get me wrong. The release should happen. But I wanted to be surprised. I knew it was going to happen all along because you told me. You told me because of her interiority. And I wanted the whoa moment, you know? Even if I saw it coming because I maybe, I don't know, for some reason had that theory, that would have been a reward. But I knew it because you told me. And that bothered me a lot. So I would reframe the whole thing. It's a totally different vision. I get it. So maybe it won't resonate with you, but that's that's where I am. Great, Cece. Thank you. Okay, Carly, your take. 
That's a really that's really interesting, Cece, because yeah, the romantic tension is there and it's exciting and like we're waiting for it. And so what happens when the reader is waiting for something is that our eyes glaze over and we skim because we're skimming for the moment they get together. And what that happens is we're not enjoying all this luxurious writing that you're doing in between. We don't get to sit with all of this because readers are like, it's coming. Page flip, page flip, page flip. You know what I mean? So I can see I can see what Cece's saying about it being more surprising. Everything you have on the page is beautiful and well done. But I think what Cece's obviously trying to do is help to elevate this so we do feel like we can spend every moment on the page with you and we're not skimming, waiting for the reveal. So I definitely... I agree in the sense that there's an opportunity there to help us spend more time with your writing, spend more time with your characters, enjoy the scene a bit more instead of being like, she's going to go fill her water bottle. What's going to happen? You know what I mean? Like, it's like, of course, she's got to get to bed and here we go. It's time, you know, like that little thing, that little dance that the reader does. I'm going to go up back up to the top. Okay, so we never really get at the idea about how everybody feels about the selling of the house. And I'm kind of dwelling on this because I think it really matters. How does everybody feel about this, right? It's been in the family for for four generations. That's like 100 years or more. I don't can't do math. I don't know how long everybody lives. That's a really long time. And so I think, especially because this, this building and this place has such a sense of character, it really matters to me about how everybody feels about it and the why and they're selling it and who's getting money for it and why does it matter? And everybody's coming as like a party to close it up. But like, I don't, if we were closing down in my family, a cottage or a cabin after it's been in our family for a hundred years, I don't think like a party atmosphere is the atmosphere I would be predicting. And so I'm trying to figure out why like what's going on here. A line that I really liked was a potted Norfolk pine reached for me just past the kitchen doorway and I stopped to pet its spindly branches. I just thought that was so lovely. You know, when you're just like absentmindedly doing something you're just like, you know, that sensory tactile bit, especially in a, in a manuscript when we're reading, we can actually feel something. I thought, I thought that was really well done. Okay. Now I want to get to the body stuff. So there's a lot of conversation about her body obviously on purpose, right? I highlighted a bunch of these, but limp body, wide hips, bread wool, belly, like all of them in a row. And I didn't know if we needed all of those in a row. I think it kind of goes back to what Cece's saying where it's like, you know, let's mention it one time. Limp, I think, meaning loose, slack, wide hips. She's She's got some extra pounds. That's great. That's cool. You know what I mean? So I just don't think we need to mention it as much because it's also very neutral. You're neutral about it. You're neutral. You're not like, I feel this way about, or, you know, not you, sorry, but the character. The character's not saying, I feel this way about my body. It's factual. And so because it's factual, the more attention you draw to it, the more I'm like, well, how am I supposed to feel? Like, am I supposed to feel a certain way? You know what I mean? So I would just maybe not mention it as much or just find if if you are trying to have commentary on it, then give us the commentary. But I actually like that it's really neutral because it's like, this is my body. <laughs> you know, this is the, the body I'm walking around in. So so I, I did it. I did enjoy that. I honestly think it's really strong and I would totally I would totally read more. Okay, so before we go back to Elizabeth, I'm going to take the opportunity to say that I disagree with Carly and Cece. I like that up front we have got the sexual tension and I'm like, will they, won't they, will they, won't they, and I'm waiting for it. And because I'm a grown-ass adult who does not need instant gratification, I am not skimming to get to that part. I am enjoying it. Okay, okay, okay. I'm like laughing here. (laughs) 
you are not reading 50 queries a week. <laughs> that true. is the difference. It has nothing to do with the adult stuff. <laughs> 100% true. 100%. I just wanted to get a dig in there. Okay. So Elizabeth, you get the opportunity to reply, to ask questions, maybe tell us what you think of that approach. If you think it'll work, if there's a reason why you don't want to do that, hit us with it. Yeah. So there are two things I wanted to note. One is on her body, I do want her to be a plus size character and it's like not anything of note. Like it's just a neutral thing. So that's really helpful to know that I'm drawing too much attention to it because I really just want it to be like nothing. Like she's just, you know. I think it's just the number of times in a row. That's the thing. I think if you sprinkled that out a bit more, it'd be okay. But it was like within a paragraph, there was three mentions. But I, I like that. That, yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. And then as for like the tension and like not being surprised, I've gotten that feedback a couple of times and I've been reluctant to change it, but I will definitely play with it now. Because to me, I just feel like and uh, like a reader, like I say in my query, like the kiss will happen. So it doesn't feel like a surprise to me going in. And so it didn't feel like I needed to keep it a surprise. And to me, it's more like the how instead of if, and then like what comes next is more of a surprise to me, but that does make a lot of sense. Yeah. There is a way around it, which is surprise me with something else. So for example, in just an example, it won't fit your story. She could be acting really sad about selling the house, add what Carly said about a little bit more context as to why, but then in her interiority, we see her being really happy about it because whatever happened there is, you know, maybe she'll be able to move on. I don't know. As long as there's surprise with something, there is no such thing as a strong first chapter that does not surprise people. There's no such thing. Actually, go, go out and look, find me a book and tell me I'm wrong. I'm not. You need to surprise us with something. It doesn't have to be the will they or won't they. If that is, like you said, important to the story, I get it. The thing about the query letter, what Carly said is true. When I read the full, I have already forgotten what I read in the query letter. So you don't have to worry if that is the reason. But if the reason is, no, for my story, it's really important to keep this because it's just authentic. It's how I want to tell it. Surprise me with something else. Don't know what the something else is going to be, but that is your job. That makes a lot of sense and is really helpful. So thank you. I think that's like, that was my really big question was like, is it too obvious that they're going to kiss right away? So I'm glad that that was picked up on and we discussed it because that was what I felt like I probably needed a little work on. So thank you. Wonderful. Okay, well, it sounded like Collie and Cece both wanted to read more pages. So maybe we're going to get to a shock tank moment where they fight each other to get the pages. Collie and Cece, would you both like to see them? I absolutely do. I do. I just wrote in the (laughs) chat. I'm like, I have to run to my next call, but I absolutely need to see the full. So yes, Elizabeth, I look forward to uh, reading it alongside Cece and, and getting back to you with our thoughts. Wonderful. Thanks so much, everyone. Right, let's go to today's guest. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, 
it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. I'm excited to tell you about two Polishing Your Work sessions that I've got coming up. You can attend one or the other on Saturday afternoon, the 26th of November, or in the evening on Wednesday, the 14th of December. Now, any scene that you've written in your work in progress is the equivalent of your writing DNA. It's a snapshot of your writing in general. Now, chances are, if you aren't ensuring one particular scene is doing the heavy lifting in terms of what a scene needs to accomplish, then you're probably not hitting the mark in most of your scenes. And if your dialogue feels stilted, and if your characters lack emotionality and interiority in one particular scene, they're probably falling short in other scenes as well. You might not be able to afford a full manuscript evaluation done by a professional, but you may not need to. If you're able to take one scene and use the feedback that I give you to assess the rest of your scenes, you'll be able to edit your own work much more critically, knowing exactly what to look out for. 
and that will make the polishing phase so much easier. Now, in these sessions, you'll submit a full scene with a maximum of 1,700 words. I will then evaluate it, providing practical written feedback within the pages of the text. You'll also be sorted into groups with four other authors who will also critique your work and whose work you will critique in return. I'll be giving you information to guide you through the critique so that you know exactly what to look out for, which will make you so much more critical of your own work. Now, there are only 25 slots available in each session, so it is limited. Get onto my website, biancamaray.com, go to the courses tab to make sure that you register before I close the registrations once we've reached our maximum limits. I'm so looking forward to reading your work. Today's guest is the author of the best-selling Little Secrets, finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize and Anthony Award, and Jar of Hearts, winner of the ITW Thriller Award and finalist for the Anthony and McCavity Awards. A Filipino-Canadian born and raised in Toronto, she spent several years in Seattle before returning home to Canada. She currently lives in Oakville, Ontario with her family. It's my pleasure to welcome Jennifer Hillier. Jennifer, welcome to the the show. Thank you so much for having me, Bianca. It's nice to be here. It's so wonderful to have you because I was a fan of your work before I met you, and then I became oh. a fan of you. Oh. Um, <laughs> and and I tell our podcast listeners, you know, what I find amusing when I meet somebody like you is you read your work, and it's dark, and it's twisted, and it is. It is pretty freaking scary, man, in terms of your psychological approach to the world. And then you meet you and you are just the loveliest, kindest, nicest person. And you look like a beauty queen. And it's just like it shows you that you cannot look at <laughs> externals because, you know, what, what lurks behind that lovely facade can be quite scary. And I think you've said before, Jennifer, when you and I spoke, that you write the scary things that you worry about? Because you feel like once you get them out into the world, they're not quite as scary. Can you tell us first a little bit about that before we discuss your book? You know, it's funny. I think a lot of us writers who write about dark fiction are nice people. And my theory is that we have a place to put all of our really dark thoughts that other writers of other genres might not. You know, so all of my dark thoughts, all of my evil thoughts, all of my villainous thoughts, they go into my work, which then leaves all the good stuff <laughs> from my regular personal life. And so I feel like a lot of people do, you know, say when they meet a crime writer, oh, you're so nice. Well, yeah, because we we've it's cathartic what we do. We don't have to. <laughs> spread that around. But something that I find interesting with you, Jennifer, is with a lot of crime writers that I speak to, or people who write mystery or whatever, they will say that there's certain places that they will not go to. And many of these women that I speak to are mothers themselves. And so they will not write anything that involves children, or there's certain writers who will not go in certain directions. For you, you are a mother, and yet you have written things where children you know, have been involved in that. So can you speak a bit about that, why you are prepared to kind of go to those darker places? It's a very, very difficult thing to write about because you never want to be gratuitous, right? And when you're writing about trauma and violence, especially when it happens in families and there are children involved, you never want to, you never want to tell a story that makes a reader who you're trying to entertain feel terrible, 
that's not the goal. The goal is to always entertain and, and to write a story that people want to read and race through those pages to see you know, what happens. Generally, when I was starting out, we were told, you know, don't kill a kid, don't kill a child, don't murder a pet. Those were basically the two big things that you could never do because people will get really upset. And this is very, very true. Although in my experience, I would say in general, readers are more upset about murdering pets than, than kids. I was, <laughs> was going to say that, man. I, I can read books with, with the kids, but like a pet, I'm just like, oh, hell no. <laughs> and I'm not a psychologist, so I don't pretend to understand why, you know, murdering Fido is way worse than murdering little John John, but it is in fiction. So I've never, ever abused a pet. I never, I can't imagine ever doing it myself. But when it comes to writing about children, I think, I, I write so much about abnormal behaviors and adults, and it's really difficult to do that without addressing the things that might have happened early on in their lives. So, you know, Little Secrets begins with a four-year-old being kidnapped. And the entire story, it's not a kidnapping story, but it's its about the mother and the way she processes this loss. And she's in a suspended state of grief the entire time because she doesn't know what happened to her child. And for me, who had a four-year-old at the time that I wrote the book about the four-year-old being kidnapped... This was my worst nightmare. And so I put myself in that headspace and imagined what I would do, how I would feel, which in some ways is easy and in some ways is really hard because you're kind of living your own nightmare in, in creating a story. For Things We Do in the Dark, which is the book that just came out, there's a lot of childhood trauma. And I do address childhood abuse. There's a mother in the story who is an, really an evil person. She's unredeemable. I don't even try to make her relatable because I don't think that she is. And to be able to show the extent of the nature of Joey's childhood without going overboard, without it being manipulative to the reader and upsetting to the reader is a difficult thing. And the way that I do it is I write everything that I see in detail in a first draft. So my first drafts are terrible and they're terrible, not just because they're badly written, but because they're, they're unfiltered. And what, what happens in some of those scenes with Joey and her mom don't end up in the final draft because it's too much. But as I'm writing it, in order for me to understand, I write everything I can see, feel, hear, taste, everything. And then in subsequent revisions, I then remove and remove and tighten and delete and end up with really just, just enough words, a sketch to show the reader what happened without taking away the emotion of it, but without being overly detailed and therefore gratuitous. But it is the hardest part, I think, of being a thriller writer is capturing these things that make us feel terrible while still framing it in a story that is meant to entertain. And it's really, it's a hard thing to do. It really yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. I take my head off to you because it really, really is. And, you know, what it boils down to is that hurt people hurt people. That's what it is. You know, if you're damaged a lot of the time, that means you're going to damage other people. And so for you and your writing, it always goes back to that origin story. And, you know, for our listeners out there, sometimes the backstory doesn't find its way in to the pages of the novel, but it is so, so important that you as the author know that origin story, that you know the backstory. Jennifer, have you ever written a character's kind of 
whether it's their misbelief, whether it's their origin story, and you've written it for yourself and it never found the way into the pages, but just informed everything that character does? Or do you find that you generally tend to include that backstory later on in the story for for context? You know, I think if I were to submit my original drafts that have every single detail of every single thing that I can see going back deep into the backstory, my novels would probably be three times as long. So if I write 100,000 words that gets published, those drafts would be probably 300,000 words long. So there's 200,000 words of a character's, multiple characters' lives that never make it into the final draft because it would really just slow down the pace. I mean, ultimately, no one, nobody would publish it. <laughs> It'd be way too long for a publisher to touch. But it would just, it wouldn't all be necessary. And so there were a lot of scenes in the last book from Joey's childhood, not all abusive scenes and things like that, but things that informed who she was as an adult that I needed to explore in order to understand who she grew up to be. And so it was, it's sometimes I feel like I'm constantly worried that I'm not an efficient writer. I'm constantly worrying that, you know what, I'm going off on tangents here. I don't outline and I write scenes that never make it into the book. But when I look back at the finished product, and this happens with every book, I then understand that all of that stuff was necessary to write the book that eventually came out. And maybe that three chapters that I wrote of a scene that happened in 1986 doesn't make it into the book. But the two lines from those three chapters, two sentences that make it into the book are the ones that are very impactful, you know, and inform the character or create a foreshadow or create tension or just are something that resonate with the readers. And it's funny, last night I was reading a book and I have a new Kindle I just bought a new Kindle because my other one died. And I'm noticing, and I don't know how to turn this function off, but there's a, you can see what other readers have highlighted in a book as you're going through it. And so I was like, oh, this is interesting. 200 people highlighted this line. And I agree, it's a really great line. So I was curious. I went into my own books. <laughs> I went back into Things We Do in the Dark, just out of curiosity to see which lines readers highlighted. And there were like notes like this, you know, 50 readers highlighted this one sentence. And I can remember the creation of that sentence. And I can remember that the creation of that sentence was really three pages of stuff that didn't make it in. And so I think I'm doing something right. If in the end, you know, I can, I can tighten something very long-winded into something very impactful and brief. But again, you know, it's, it's part of the, the process of creating a story. 100%. And I think this is something every writer can relate to because whether you've published or whether you're an emerging writer, you always have these insecurities about your process and you're always going, oh, so-and-so does it this way. Maybe I should do it this way. And maybe it's not the most efficient use of time. But something I've learned the hard way is your process is your process and nothing is wasted. As you say, you know, 200 pages perhaps had to be taken out, but you had to write those damn 200 pages to get to the point where you are now. And so I think, you know, as writers, we should spend less time beating ourselves up about our process and just kind of go, it is what it is and, you know, embrace it. That's All good right. advice. That's really, and I need to remember that too, because I'm seven books in and I'm writing my eighth and I'm still beating myself up for how I'm doing it. 
you know, it, it, but why? And, it, like it's working. <laughs> and the success you've had, Jennifer, I feel like you should be teaching us all classes on how to damn well do it because you have had enormous success. So you are clearly, clearly doing something You're very right. Kind. Oh, thank you very much. Many things right, you know. Yeah, I, I love that process. I love that you don't outline. I don't do it either. I hate all of that stuff. And every time I speak to writers who do it, I'm like, oh, maybe I should do it that way. But you know what? That just, it's, it's not my way. And for our listeners out there, find your way. Find the way that works for you. We give you so much advice on this podcast. We go, do this, don't do this, stay away from this. All of it's just advice. At the end of the day, you're going to find your way of doing it. And that's going to be, you know, the best way for you. 100%. Um, Okay, so we're going to now talk about Jennifer's latest book, which has been chosen as one of the top 10 Indigo picks. It's been chosen for so, so much. I just want to give you an understanding of what's in the plot. Okay, so this is from the flap copy. When Paris Peralta is arrested in her own bathroom, covered in blood, holding a straight razor, her celebrity husband dead in the bathtub behind her, she knows she'll be charged with murder. But as bad as this looks, it's not what worries her the most. With the unwanted media attention now surrounding her, it's only a matter of time before someone from her long-hidden past recognizes her and destroys the new life she's worked so hard to build along with any chance of a future. 25 years earlier, Ruby Rays, known as the Ice Queen, was convicted of a similar murder in a trial that riveted Canada in the early 90s. Rays knows who Paris really is, and when she's unexpectedly released from prison, she threatens to expose all of Paris's secrets. Left with no other choice, Paris must finally confront the dark past she escaped once and for all, because the only thing worse than a murder charge are two murder charges. Dun, dun, dun. Right. <laughs> so, Excellent. I, so, so compelling. And, you know, Thank Jennifer... You. You know as well now that as a writer, it's no longer possible to just read a book as a reader. We now read as writers. We are trying to look behind the curtain. We're trying to find the rabbit in the hat. We are like, oh, how did this happen? How did this person do this? And so while reading your book, that's how I approach it. And what fascinated me about this book is what a puzzle it was. You know, I feel like some books, there's, I mean, there's myriad ways to write all books, but so many books lend themselves to a certain structure. It's going to be a linear timeline. It's going to be a single POV, et cetera, et cetera. This book was really like a juggling act because there was so much happening. There was so much that you kind of needed the reader to know at certain points, but there was so much that you didn't want them to know at other points. So can you speak a bit about how you approach this if you don't outline? So I will say there are probably 13 versions of things we do in the dark, all structured differently. So because I don't outline, I don't find the heartbeat of the story until probably middle like after I've been writing for a good few months and with things we do in the dark, it was a unique, it was a unique writing situation because we were in the middle of the pandemic. My son was virtual schooling in first grade and my husband was working from home and our house was really small. So there were three of us in, in a very small area trying to do things that we would normally do apart from each other. So, and I would get interrupted constantly either with my husband talking on the phone to someone at work or my little guy needing help or basically my little guy just wandering away from the computer to watch, you know, whatever was on Netflix without no one noticing because we were both so busy. So I wrote in chunks. I wrote in little spurts, 15, 20 minute increments. 
And there was no possible way to, for me to think about the story linearly. If I don't have an outline to follow, there's no blueprint. So I wrote scenes. And every day when I would come to the page, I would ask myself, okay, if I want to get this book done within a reasonable time frame, I have to put words on paper. You know, it doesn't matter how the words fit yet. This I know because I can worry about that later. But I have to, I have to put words on paper. So because I'm pressed for time, because I'm going to be interrupted a million times today, what can I see most clearly today? And so some days that was stuff happening in Paris's world. Some days it was stuff happening in Ruby's world. Some days it was Drew. Some days it was Jimmy. Some days it was, it was Joey. And I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote until I had probably 70,000 words, which is about three quarters of a novel of all of these scenes in a couple of different points of view, different timelines. Some were set in the 90s, a couple in the 80s, some in the present day. And I knew they all fit, but I didn't know how. I knew they all existed in the same world. They were all related to each other, but I didn't know how. And the hardest part for me with this last book, and it's always the hardest part of every book, but this last book was a doozy, was figuring out, as you said, how the puzzle all fit. And I must have shuffled those scenes dozens of times. And in the end, my poor editor ended up reading at least six drafts of the exact same book with different openings, different aha moments, right? All of it just placed differently. And I would, I, he would give me the greatest notes, give it back. And I would be like, okay, I'll, I'll, yeah, no, I don't like it. And then I would go ahead and, you know, shuffle it around again and, and send it back and go, I know that I said I was going to write it like this, but can you read this draft now and tell me if you think it's better? <laughs> because the idea was to, to try to, to make the impactful moments as, 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 explosive as possible, but it's a, it's a difficult thing to do until the book is nearly done for me. And so my process not being linear, it really was a lot of copying and pasting. I discovered how to use Scrivener in a way that works for me. I've, I've always had Scrivener and I've never been able to make it work. I find the actual word processing part a little fussy and I don't like it. So I stick with word, but for organizing plot, oh my God, Scrivener was my best friend because I could just shuffle things around really, really fast and see how that flowed. And so without Scrivener, this book would not have been written. But it was it was really a matter of just trial and error, you know, and I wish there was some magic to it. I wish I could say, you know, I went into writing this book and I knew exactly what I was going to say and how I was going to say it. And that's only been for me one time with one book that I wrote in seven weeks, which was The Butcher. And I have no idea how I did it. It will never happen again. Every other book has been copying and pasting, shuffling around, trying to see what works. What's the best opening? And I will say all of my openings are written last. So people are like, oh, did you know that opening line when you first? No, <laughs> I don't know that until I'm nearly done. And then I go back and I go, what's the best way to enter the reader into this story? So I write very out of sequence and I'm trying not to panic about it anymore because it's not fun to panic when you're writing. Yeah. And you know what? The only way out is through, you know, you, you have got to go through all of this to, to figure it all out. I'm fascinated by the beginnings happening at the end, but I also think that's kind of genius because I think that takes so much pressure off of a beginning because for me, when an idea is percolating 
you know, I am always terrified to begin because the beginning is with each word I type, I feel like this amazing, perfect idea I have is being corrupted by my limited abilities as a writer. And it's always so much more perfect in my head than when I actually get it down on paper. But I feel like if you take away all the pressure out of that and go, it doesn't really matter where I begin because, you know, that's going to only come later once I figured it out. I think that's a genius move. Thank you. And I, I get a lot of questions from starting, you know, writers who are just starting out and they'll say, I have an idea. How do I start? My advice is always just start. Start with what you can see first. Do the easy things first. I'm not saying writing is easy, but if you can see it clearly, it's a lot easier to describe to yourself what you're seeing than it is to think of the next thing that hasn't happened yet in your mind. You know, and you can always piece it together. Now, mind you, if we were back in the 80s and everyone was typing on their electric typewriters, I may not be writing like this and I may not give this advice because that would be awful. (laughs) But in the day of, you know, word processing and Word and MacBooks and and writing on your phone and all manner of things that I've heard writers can do, start with what you can see. Make it easy on yourself and write what you can see first. And I will always say the opening of my books in the original draft usually ends up in the middle. And then the actual opening in the published book is something I write very close to the end. So... I love that. I love that because every book is a puzzle and I firmly believe that every book is going to teach you how to write it because it doesn't matter how many books you've written. Every single book is going to need to be approached differently. It's going to need to be structured differently. It's going to require different skills from from you as a writer. Certainly if you're a writer who's wanting to push yourself and push the boundaries and and you know keep giving yourself challenges. So something we talk about a lot on the podcast is planting curiosity seeds. And this seems to be something that emerging writers struggle with the most. And I think this comes from a place of one, not trusting themselves because they haven't yet built up the confidence and two, perhaps not trusting the reader to kind of pick up on the clues that we are giving them. And we always say when we review query letters and opening pages with the view to helping writers land their dream agents, you know, we say you don't want to give too much away too early but also you don't want the reader to be confused. What you want the reader to be is intrigued. They must have picked up these curiosity seeds and go, oh, I'm going to keep reading as the writer keeps planting these seeds so that I'm there when these things bloom. And it is so difficult to figure out the timing of that. So now, Jennifer, with your editor, who's now read something seven times, that's tough because you start to forget what the hell you read where and you already know this information but in the last draft you only found it out in chapter three but now you're finding it out in chapter six but you can't unknow something once you bloody well know it so do you have beta readers who look at each new draft and are able to come to it with totally clean eyes or or how does that work for you What's crazy is I don't have any beta readers so when I finish writing a book it goes to my agent first. And really Victoria, who's very good editorially, she will go through it and she'll just pick out some major things. She's not nitpicky about it. Just make sure everything flows and sounds right. And usually she has a handful of notes for me and that's it. And then it goes to my editor where I always encourage him to rip it apart, which sounds terrifying. But my process is when I'm writing a story, it's so delicate in the beginning. And because I am writing my way into my story, meaning I don't have a gigantic idea when I begin of what's going to happen in a hundred and 400 pages, 
I am protective of my story. I don't like to collaborate. I don't like to discuss in detail with my editor. And that's something that I've been able to be honest with him about. When we first began working together, I had said to him, one, I can't write a book a year. This I know. I did that once and it nearly killed me. Two, I generally like to be left alone when I'm writing the book. I I don't need to run ideas by you. Um, I don't, I don't like to even tell writer friends what I'm working on, not because I don't trust them, but because I'm super sensitive to people's reactions. And if I were to tell you, this is what my story is about and your face does anything and it could have nothing to do with me or the story whatsoever. Maybe you thought of something and that you left the stove on at home. If your face does a thing and my neurotic little brain perceives that as negative, that story just, it just dies. And so I've learned to be very, very protective of what I'm working on. But when the story is done and I've taken it as far as I can go and I've shuffled my scenes around and I believe that I have the right structure, when it goes to my editor, he can tear the shit up. I don't care what he does, rip it apart, tell me how to make this better. Right. I have no ego when it comes to edits whatsoever. Whatever you think I need to do, I will I will consider extremely carefully and do my best to create the best story that I have. And so that's just me. But it, it again, it takes confidence and experience to get to a point in your career where you feel comfortable letting someone do that. Because in the early days, I think when I was starting out as a baby writer, oh my God, it was painful to get that first editorial letter. I felt like a lousy writer. You know, I felt like when I got that, I think it was eight pages of notes. I was like, Oh, like if you hate this book, why did you buy it? Like that was, <laughs> I was so wounded, you know, and I, I took it so personally. And then as you, you go, you begin to realize, Oh, we're all on the same team here. You know, you've already bought this book or you're already agreeing to work with me. You're not trying to make this book worse. You're not trying to mess with my head. You're actually trying to help me. And so it then becomes a very collaborative process, but it, it, it takes time and experience to get there. And when you're starting out, you're worried about everything, everything. There's all these things that you don't know about writing that you can't know until you begin to write. And there's all these things that you can't know about publishing until you're published and you're living that life, right? And, but it's it's very daunting and it's very scary at the beginning. Yeah, I love I love what you've said about having no ego because it is difficult, you know, to get critique. And I find that when I the first time I get critique, my back kind of goes up and it's like, why can't you just figure this damn thing out? Why can't you see what I was trying to do here? What's wrong with you? And then I blame myself. And then but luckily, this is a very short cycle. It lasts like three or four hours and then boom, I'm through it. And and then I'm out on the other end and I'm like, yeah, they're right. Okay, let me fix it. And I think a lot of people do get their back up. And, you know, we cannot be open to making something better if we are all ego and if we're like, how dare you? How dare you? What I've learned about myself, though, is the things that I'm most defensive about are the things that my editor is almost always right about. And it's so annoying when it's like, oh, you should really maybe consider this, you know, towards the end. And I'm like, this is why I didn't do it like that, you know, and I'll have a whole list of reasons in my head of exactly I thought about that already. And then when I sit with it for a little bit, I'll tell myself, you know what? Okay, let's just try it and see how it flows. And then I'll try it and then it'll be better. And then I'll go back to my editor with my tail between my legs going, (laughs) Yeah, you're right. It is yeah. much stronger that way. 
Yeah, the, the muttering darkly, you were right. Okay, fine. Let's not belabor the point. Let's move on. Okay, so for other writers, in terms of tension and pacing and those curiosity seeds, do you have advice for writers, you know, in terms of like when to withhold something, when to reveal it? Like for me, what I do is if there's something that I don't want to reveal just yet, I challenge myself to keep going for as long as I can without making the reader feel manipulated. Because there's a point at which the reader is like, oh man, this writer is yanking my chain and it's irritating me. And I've closed books before because of that. I'm just like, oh Same. my God, you've, you've extended this way too long and I'm feeling so manipulated and it's annoying me. So for me, it's like striking that balance between planting the curiosity seeds, know, knowing that the reader is asking the right questions, like, ooh, why was this alluded to? This is interesting. And then kind of keeping it going for as long as possible until it's revealed in a very organic way without pissing off the reader. What's your advice for that? Ooh, I've been thinking about this one a lot. This one is really hard for me to articulate and to dial down into a usable piece of advice because a lot of my writing is organic and instinctive. Writing for me is is as much listening as it is typing on words on a page. And when it comes time to reveal something, it's usually because the rhythm of the story has told me, dun, 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 this is the moment. And it may be a few drafts before you hear it. And so my advice, if you're starting out wondering when to reveal this, do your best, reveal it when you think it should happen. But remember that all writing is rewriting. And when you go back, you'll know whether it was too soon or too late. If it's too soon, it usually means there's not enough buildup. There weren't enough nuggets. There wasn't enough of a setup there to make that reveal dramatic enough. And if it's too late, that means the reader has closed the book already because there's an unanswered question that you've been teasing them with. And if you go too long with that, people get frustrated or they begin to skim, right? And if they're skimming, they're still reading, but it's not fulfilling, and you want the reader, I mean, I want all of my readers to feel fulfilled and I want them to close the book and go, ah, that was satisfying. Even if they don't like the ending, they feel like they were satisfied that everything they were teased with was resolved in some way. I don't like open endings myself. That's just a, a I've been asked that question before. Do you like vague endings? I hate ambiguous endings. I, I just personally don't like being on this journey with you. And then you don't tell me which guy she ended up with or who actually did it. Like, that's so frustrating. So I will always give you an ending, even if it's not the one that you were hoping for. You'll know definitively when you're finished that book exactly what happened in that book. But it's it's instinct and it's just listening, writing your book and doing your best and then going back and asking yourself, does it feel right to have it here? You know, and, and it's, a, like I said, it's a very hard thing for me to be able to teach someone else. It's something that I learned just by doing. And a lot of writing is, right? It's just, you, you have to do it. Yeah. But but really what you're saying is for writers to trust themselves. And that's, you know, what we're saying time and again, trust that inner voice, trust yourself, always get the feedback, always work, do the rewrites to make something better. But the very act of writing means you're trusting yourself. You're trusting yourself that you have something to say and, and you're trusting this voice and, and everything ties into that so much. Jennifer, what a joy to get to chat to you. I have loved your books. I 
really am a super fan and like you very much personally as well. It's been such a joy to see this book get all the acclaim it deserved because I feel like you were one of those writers, you were winning awards and getting shortlisted and stuff, but I don't know that you were getting the kind of commercial success that you you really deserved. And it was wonderful to see it this time. So congratulations. Thank you so much. It has been a journey, Bianca, and it's been a pleasure getting to know you, writer to writer. And I'm so I'm so happy to be able to talk with you today. And thank you for inviting me. And we will have you back with the next one. Excellent. Can't wait. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host, Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six-module, 10-hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10am to 5pm Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host, Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six-module, 10-hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and 
everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10am to 5pm Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.